You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 15th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Russia batters Ukraine further. Joe Biden and Xi Jinping remind of the value of in-person diplomacy. And is it time to make first ladies or their equivalents redundant? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Terry Stiasny and John Elledge, will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus, we'll reflect on the Grammy nominations and visit a new exhibition by Caribbean painters. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Terry Stiasny, the political journalist and writer, and by John Elledge, the columnist and author. Hello to you both. Hello. Good evening. Uh, it is that part of the show, much the more so as Christmas looms, uh, in which we invite our guests to do the thing of basically trundling up and down an imaginary street with a big barrow full of stuff. Um, Terry... There is a thing of which you cannot speak, uh, but which you will be able to speak in due course. But th- there's yeah. other books you've written people could so buy, the, right? The, yeah, I'm still working on the Hush Hush thing, um, but other books which are available, uh, two political thrillers, if you like uh, books about people, you know, giving their cronies dodgy peerages and such like, and all sorts of drama and se- missing files, se- uh, secrets. Yeah, that's that's generally my line of work. So, yeah. uh, And John, you still have available on the shelves a book explaining how and why subscribers to conspiracy theories are mostly dingbats. Uh, but also how they are all of us. Yes, mm. conspiracy, a history of uh, uh, unrepeatable theories and not you're allowed, of them. You're allowed to say bollocks. Oh, that's, bollocks. That's okay, history yeah. of bollocks I mean, theories. Don't, don't, don't overdo it. But I, I won't sound in, too In the context of your subtitle, it's fine. Uh, yes, a book co-written with the excellent Tom Phillips, which came out uh, last summer. Also, I should mention I have an equally excellent substack called The Newsletter is Not Quite Everything, on which I'm currently running a deal where if you subscribe for a year now, I'll also send you a copy of my first book, which is one of those sort of trivia books you buy for your dad at Christmas. So it's a great time, really, to give me some money. I think that's the first Substack plug on the daily. That can't be, surely. I, I mean, I, 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 way I, I, other of our guests may have Substacks. I'm starting to feel mm. like one of the very few people left alive who does not, but you are the first that I can recall actually plugging. Oh, well, that's, I'm, I'm hoping I benefit from that. Congratulations. And I get all, all, the, all the listeners' money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will hear more from you both shortly, but we're going to start in Ukraine. Ukraine, which once again finds itself on the receiving end of Russian petulance. Following Russia's capitulation in Kherson, the only regional capital it had captured, Russia has launched a major barrage of missiles at targets across Ukraine, once again striking energy infrastructure and other civilian targets. Several cities, including Odessa and Lviv, are reporting at least partial loss of electricity and heating, and the forecast for the next few days in Lviv rarely creeps up above zero Celsius. Well, I'm joined now from Mikolaev by the Ukrainian journalist Natalia Humanyuk. Um, Natalia, first of all, what's the latest where you are? Um, so Mikolaev, which is a southern city uh, on the way to Kherson, where I was heading, um, it's used for shelling, but something which happened today, it's quite, unu- it's quite unique, I should say. It was really the biggest attack since the invasion and uh, the biggest which we experienced in early October when the Russia started the assault on the Ukrainian infrastructure. So there were around uh, 
according to the Ukrainian air defense, around 100, at least 90 rockets, you know, from the Caspian Sea sent to the uh, whole territory of Ukraine, including to, for instance, these areas. We, while driving, heard the, the sound, I should say, it's quite a tough <laughs> feeling, uh, but it hap was happening all over the country. Fortunately, here there was no major damage uh, and people stayed in the shelters, all uh, bomb shelters all across the country for a couple of hours. But out of the 90 rockets, 70, according to the Ukrainian air defense, were um, shelled, however, at least 15 object of the critical infrastructure uh, might be damaged all around the country. So we just like getting out of the places without proper connection, trying to figure out what's happening anywhere. Luckily, we understand there are not so many casualties. Uh, as we heard, most of the rockets has been shelled, but it was quite an immense pressure uh, on the whole country. And in Mykolaiv, how is the infrastructure holding up in terms of energy, electricity, heating and so on? Um, so heating, electricity, it's it's there. Mykolaiv uh, was really in this unlucky position. This is a town between Odessa and Kherson. And for the last months, it was, you know, shelled uh, more or less regularly. So it was under the attack for quite a long time. But no, electricity, internet connection, water supply, all is there. Somehow Ukrainians became resilient to, uh, you know, to rebuild the things. But of course, there, there are limits. And especially before the, the cold season, it's becoming more active, hectic. The, the Russian withdrawal and uh, from Kherson makes the city feels a bit safer. At least it was the case a couple of days ago. But we see that from this type of the attacks, it, uh, you know, it, it, it you know, not anybody can be fully protected. You mentioned there the beginning of the cold season, and of course, winter is descending on Ukraine. And I'm just at the risk of depressing you looking at the forecast for Mykolaiv now. It's going to start snowing on Sunday, and then temperatures will be below freezing uh, probably for some several months. Uh, how are people in a city in Mykolaiv's position preparing for that? Uh, I think like like all over the country, it's usually the end of the November. It's already when the snow starts. It's a cold season. So uh, we all connect this attack not so much as for the, you know, revenge for the withdrawal or capitulation of Kherson, but really, uh, you know, I talked to the Ukrainian military back in end of August when they were thinking about this scenario you know, the targeted attacks on the infrastructure before the cold season. They started a bit early, honestly, in October, which given the Ukrainians, which destroyed a lot of infrastructure already, but given some, you know, time to prepare because, you know, people are buying generators, people are getting used and finding their way, maybe if it's possible, you know, if you can move from some, you know, residential areas outside to the villages, you know, to use any type of a different uh, heating or things like that. So people just are preparing for 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 tough times. Uh, and just finally, we have spoken to a, a lot of Ukrainians, uh, correspondents, officials and people uh, over the last eight or nine months of this war. And one recurring motif of those conversations has been people talking about the resolve of Ukrainians, the morale of Ukrainians. It is going to face a severe test uh, this winter. Are you still convinced that Ukrainians are absolutely determined to see this through? Uh, I don't have doubts about that. You know, I said, like, 
oddly enough, you know, the similar attacks as for today, it was the first one in October. That was very shocking. I don't mean that today was an easy day, but it was the months of uh, preparedness. And I see it everywhere in the way how fast, you know, the, the state is able to uh, rebuild the infrastructure when it's possible, you know, from the railway to electricity. You know, I even give you an example, you know, the, the Ukrainian uh, mobile companies, Kherson is out of cell phone coverage uh, for was for months of the Ukrainian coverage. They providing they have a free, first uh, very fast decision to provide the uh, mobile connection for free. You know, like that people don't need to pay for that. So there are a lot of quick you know decisions as long as things are unfolding. So this resilience would be there, but of course it has a toll on human life and human suffering. And uh, we still don't know, you know, how to live in a modern town. And Ukraine is a kind of modern country without the electricity. If you live, for instance, on the, you know, 10th, 12th floor of the residential area, it's still something new. But I see a lot of uh, the, uh, you know, preparation and, and, and the way people organize their life in this new environment. Natalia Humanyuk in Mikolaev, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll, we'll bring our panel back in now, uh, Terry and John. And for much of the last two and a half years, of course, face-to-face meetings have been difficult to organise. Confined by COVID-19, we adapted to interacting via screens after first carefully arranging our bookshelves so that we looked clever and turning any volumes we may have written ourselves to face our computer's camera front on. However, the headline thus far of the current G20 summit in Bali does seem something of an advertisement for the virtues of the in-person chat. US President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping spoke for three hours, and even allowing for the diplomatic euphemisms which traditionally shroud such encounters, it does seem to have gone fairly amicably. So, Terry, we're not talking so much about the discussion itself as what we what we derive or what we glean from the medium. So what do you think a face-to-face meeting gives us that an on-screen meeting or a telephone chat does not? Uh, I think it gives the leaders a chance to get a real sense of the person that they are interacting with, the kind of, you know, so much can change if leaders actually just get on with each other and obviously you don't get that so much you know through a screen and obviously they're meeting with interpreters there you know none of these things are kind of very rarely do you get them go off for the sort of the walk in the woods you know where they go and have sort of really in-depth private discussions Um, but these things I think they become more symbolic when the leaders haven't had a chance to meet in the recent past I mean if you think back to some of the big summits in the past those were things that were you know American and Russian leaders or Nixon and Mao or whatever had never met face to face and it was the big sort of symbolic step of actually going and seeing each other face to face so I think you know in a time when a lot of world leaders haven't left their own countries either by choice or not uh, I think it does become more important So John Terry uh, cites there the example of Nixon travelling to China to visit Mao um, which was of course seen at the time quite reasonably as a seismic diplomatic mm. breakthrough but Even amid the restrictions of the last couple of years, does the face-to-face interview still have the value it might have had uh, 40, 50 years ago because people are now much more accessible? I mean, really, if there is a massive thing, the President of the United States can talk to the President of China pretty much whenever he likes. I think so. I I, I do think there is a huge value in it. I mean, uh, having... 
I, I, I do feel you you miss something when you can't when you're not face to face with someone. It, it it is easy if you're on a if you're doing a Zoom meeting, to to zone out, get distracted, like start looking at Twitter or, or <laughs> Mastodon, is it maybe this week? Well, um, in a way, in a way, you can't do that. It's much easier to retain that kind of that personal connection, to kind of feel the if you're if you're actually face to face with someone. Also, as I have a very pretentious um, example from Please. history, um, which has, which is of course my specialty. Um, if you think back to 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 1870, um, which I'm sure uh, we older, do frequently. Older yep. listeners uh, mm. may remember um, the 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 Ems telegram. Are you familiar with this? Go uh, on. Uh, so it was um, the time of great tension between France and and what was to become Germany. Um, there was a meeting, a face to face meeting between between Kaiser Wilhelm I and the French ambassador about some tension around uh, Alsace Lorraine. Um, and you know they set out the positions. It didn't go brilliantly, but you know it was reasonably polite. They knew where they stood. It was all very friendly. At which, uh, which point, one Otto von Bismarck um, put out a press release on it, which had a lot of the more conciliatory phrases removed, <laughs> uh, which caused uh, an increase in tensions on both sides and a French declaration of war. Um, so I think in that one story, you've got both the, 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 the value of, of that kind of face-to-face meeting and the danger of doing it uh, in more high-tech ways. Well, indeed, Terry, because that is a potential drawback if two people meet uh, and just don't get on at all or dislike each other. And there is also the fact, and obviously former US President Donald Trump's meeting with Kim Jong-un was probably an example of this, that turning up at a thing kind of commits you in a way that just having a chat via Zoom or on the phone does not. You've bought into the process, and if you walk away from it with nothing... You look a bit silly. Yeah, I think there are good exa- other good examples of that. I mean, I think like you know when Kennedy met Khrushchev, everyone thought at first, "Wow, this is going to be great." You know, the mm. the young, you know, vibrant young American president's going to meet this sort of more open Russian leader. And Khrushchev came away completely sort of underestimating Kennedy, saying, "Well, he's inexperienced, he's immature, he's badly briefed about this. None of this went well." And then they based his political calculations on that. Um, and I think there is a danger in people just not knowing each other. I mean, I was talking to an MP recently who'd been around in the House of Commons for a while and sort of looking at the 2019 intake and kind of going, the thing is I don't really know any of them because <laughs> half of them haven't been here. We, we, we didn't meet each other face to face for two and a half years. And he had the sort of the bigger point that that actually made it harder to to manage MPs and for MPs to do what they're told by the whips and so forth, which might be a good thing, because these people just hadn't met face to face for a, for such a long time. I mean, it is an oddity of the modern age, John, that you no know, other generations of humanity have been through, and I'm not sure if we've quite figured it out. The fact that you can have quite long-standing working relationships with people who you know you wouldn't recognise if they moved in next door, and certainly as a, a, a fellow freelance journalist, you will know the feeling. You have probably worked with editors for years uh, without necessarily ever meeting them. Uh, I mean, I, I do personally, for the reasons we're talking about, I do personally set great value of being able to sit down and have a coffee or a beer with someone. So mm. I try and avoid that. But but I certainly do know people who switched jobs during the pandemic and went months working from <laughs> home without ever meeting their colleagues. And I do think that, I mean, I, I, th- I think that kind of limits your ability to, to build 
trust with people. Mm. And I think in terms of this of international relations field, I think that's the main thing is like knowing that someone is not going to screw you behind your back is particularly when we're kind of looking at the sort of situations we're seeing with, with US-China relations or around the war in Ukraine. I think the level of understanding where like, even if you disagree with someone, you know what their motives are, you can sort of predict their, their ability, uh, sorry, predict their next move to some extent, is, is incredibly useful in these kind of high-risk situations, I think. But it, it doesn't always work, though, does it, Terry? We did, of course, prior to the invasion of Ukraine, have this curious procession of leaders schlepping to Moscow to sit at the other end of Vladimir Putin's weird long table. Uh, and, of course, the most elementary student of British history will recall a British Prime Minister coming back from a face-to-face meeting in 1938, <laughs> uh, triumphantly brandishing a piece of that's paper. Not, and That's not quite true. That's the way it's been presented by history. But it was the Chamberlain government was buying time for rearmament. But perhaps they know that when you go to the meeting and when you sit at the long table, this is not all going, you know, incredibly well. I mean, if you think of, you know, incredible, mostly the very most recent British political history, it was probably a massive, one of many Liz Truss's of Liz Truss's massive mistakes not to, for instance, meet uh, you know, Nicola Sturgeon or to meet any of the other first ministers, not even to phone them up, you know, in the six <laughs> weeks she had and Rishi Sunak did that in the first day or so just so he could say, tick that off the list fairly basically, just ring them up and say hello and then you can see that he's kind of trying to build on that with his meetings with Macron and with the other you know, his, his mango spritz with Justin Trudeau and so forth. Well, I, I'm glad you have invoked contemporary British politics because we will now monitor the progress of the United Kingdom to the sunlit up plans which listeners may recall being assured of reaching circa 2016. On the same day that the UK stock market has ceded its long-held position as Europe's most valuable to France, the UK's fifth Prime Minister in the six years since the Brexit vote, Rishi Sunak, acknowledged that the UK's reputation abroad has taken, quote, a bit of a knock. In an arguably related development, Brexit-supporting former Environment Secretary George Eustace has admitted out loud that the UK's much ballyhooed post-Brexit trade deal with Australia is also, quote, not actually very good. Um, John, do we dare perceive uh, among the, the Brexiter ranks any distant clink of a dropping penny? I'm not sure we do. So as I understand, as I understood it, that Rishi Sunak quote wasn't actually about, I didn't think it was about Brexit. I thought it was about the, um, the short-lived quasi-quateng chancellorship. Well, indeed it was, but you it, could argue that that, like everything else of the last six years, I mean, Brexit is the, it's, I mean, it's where I, it all starts. I'm with you. I entirely agree. I think Brexit is, is an absolutely terrible idea. My, my, my suspicion is in the long term, Britain kind of edges back to the single market because otherwise it's too expensive not to. But I don't see many, I mean, you Eustace is a bit different. Eustace clearly was actually sort of recanting. Mm. Um, he, he reminds me of, like, we've seen a number of business leaders the last few years uh, basically standing up and going, that's not that's not the Brexit I wanted. Like, those, you know those children's books, that's not my elephant. <laughs> that's not my Brexit. <laughs> it's labour yeah. markets. It's too constrained. <laughs> yeah. It's that kind of thing. Um, I am not sure we see any movement on, on Brexit while the Conservative Party remains in power. Because if you kind of think about who selects the Conservative leader, mm. um, as we well, saw as, over the as summer, we have learned. And yes. yeah, they are they are a very a very old, a very white, a very out of touch group who care a great deal about 
um, moving away from the European Union. I think we need a change of government before we can see any movement back towards sanity. Um, but I do think the, the evidence is piling up that will make the British public come round on that. Like we've seen plenty of polling now that suggests that it's it's getting it's fairly consistently sort of sixty forty in terms of, you know, was it a mistake to leave the European Union? The majority of the British people now say that it was. Well we will come back to that shortly, but I, I do want to talk about whatever dent this may have put in the United Kingdom's image abroad, Terry, because it pains me to say any of the following as an Australian, but the, you know you don't need a long memory to recall the United Kingdom being generally reasonably well thought of in the world as a country that was, you know, competently run and sensible and didn't do too many rash things. I mean, there's obviously a number of asterisks next to that thing, but you know what I'm saying. Do you get the impression that the UK's image has taken a, a major ding in the last six years? Uh, I think, yeah, I think just because you Britain is is not in the room in terms of so many, obviously they're still in the room at, you know, things like the G7, the G20 that's going on, NATO, but you are not there in a lot of big uh, European negotiations. And what you're seeing is British, you know, ministers having to go back and try to put things slightly back together. I mean, there seems to be a little bit of optimism at the moment, you know, about the Northern Ireland Protocol and the idea that we might possibly be able to gradually renegotiate something something that works rather than, you know, what uh, the situation we had, which, which patently really didn't work. I mean, what hasn't happened yet, though, is, you know, and for obvious political reasons, Labour can't yet really go back and say, look, we agree this was all a massive mistake. They still have to, at this point, say, OK, we accept the result, we have to, mm. We are where we are, and we have to we have to carry on from there. But there seems to be a slightly more, you know, a more constructive attitude to trying to make things work. And, and you know, the reality of it is that's likely to to unpick the things that were put in place by the last couple of prime ministers. John, you were saying that you couldn't see any likelihood of a, a nervous, hesitant step back towards Europe absent a change of government. And you're probably right. But as Terry points out, Labour uh, Labour's leader Sir Keir Starmer has already said that attempting to rejoin the European Union is not a priority, but you are quite right. I've been looking at the same polls. Uh, a YouGov poll in June said only 16% of people thought Brexit had gone well or very well, 54% badly or very badly. Yeah, I mean, Keir Starmer, the, the Labour leader, has been, as you say, quite clear that that this is not this is not what he will do in office. I mean, it would be um, an enormous headache, wouldn't it? It would be. But, I mean, firstly, I think... I mean, at risk of alienating some of the listenership, Keir Starmer is a lawyer and has a lawyer's approach, approach to the truth. Mm. He's, he's a great one for loopholes. Um, and some, also something we do know about him is that he has been far harder... I mean, I, I hesitate to bring up internal Labour Party politics because it's an absolutely awful subject and I hate myself for even doing it. Um, <laughs> but but having, having sort of tried to consolidate, having tried to be quite conciliatory towards the left of the Labour Party when running for the leadership, he has in office uh, repeatedly denounced them. He's been mm. quite hostile to them. Um, in the manner of, you know, he, because if you think of it in, in, in uh, sort of international terms, he was essentially trying to win a primary election and, that, and now mm. he's trying to run for the general 
and those are two different electorates. So, but the result of this is, we know that Keir Starmer is a man who can be flexible with the truth. I think it is a, a, a risk of, of predicting that what will happen is what they want to happen. Um, I think it is entirely plausible that, especially if a Labour government comes to power with a, with a half-decent majority, um, its leadership will turn around and go, oh, the economy is so much worse than we thought. We have a mandate. We are going to move Britain back towards Europe. Well, to Chile now, which finds itself without a First Lady. This does not appear to be any reflection upon President Gabriel Boric as such. His partner, Irina Karamanos, has not wearied of him, but of the role and title. Ms Karamanos announced a couple of weeks back she was quitting as First Lady on the grounds that she does not believe the role should even exist. It is at least her second change of mind on the subject, having initially decided she didn't want the gig, then deciding to have a go at doing it and reforming it, and now deciding she was right the first time. Um, Terry, as a fundamental principle, um, should the spouse slash partner whatever of a given national leader actually be a thing? I think it's a really weird kind of historical hangover and I was kind of... It's all Dolly Madison's fault. (laughs) It's all Dolly Madison's fault. I think almost maybe it's trying to recreate this idea of, you know, you have a country house and the people are the hosts and you you want to know about their families. But I think it's almost a hangover from the kind of mid-20th century idea that, you know, you you invite the boss to dinner and and you you mostly now, I don't think people invite their spouses to to work dues. And I think it's kind of quite a strange thing that we still expect people to have their partners you know host big banquet dinners and things like that i mean i think most british prime ministers recently their spouses at least had a had a day job of sorts mm, and so i think you know it's it's time for it to go john president boric did say something um, it was an interesting thought about the role during the campaign he said there can be no posts in the state that have to do or are related to a relationship with the president or with anyone um so if you think about that, and I think he has a case, is is the first lady or the equivalent role, it, it, is it basically just nepotism out in the open? It is weirdly, isn't it? I mean, it's incredibly heteronormative. You don't get, like, like you don't get first husbands performing the role in the same way you get first ladies. There first hasn't been that many of No, well, there, there hasn't. There, have, there has, of course, been one in, in Chile, of course. Um, but it, it's, it, it is, I mean, also, this is often a criticism that has been made. If you think about... Um, in, in Bill Clinton's first term back in the 90s, where, like, um, I believe Hillary Clinton was given a certain amount of responsibility to, to, manage, to manage the presidency's approach towards healthcare reform. And that was incredibly controversial and was attacked. Uh, even though, she, like, she was, you know, she is, she's a very intelligent woman. She was a bit of an expert. She was, and it had always been clear that this would be her role. But that was treated as a form of nepotism because she was not directly elected. So it does kind of feel like a bit weird that you say, oh, that you expect that there will be any formal expectation for someone to mm. have an actual policy role um, simply because they are married to a political leader. And of course, we've also seen something very similar quite recently in British history where um, the wife of Boris Johnson, uh, Carrie, uh, Carrie Simmons, uh, was, was attacked for being involved in policy mm. in his Downing Street. Um, it does seem to be that sometimes it is controversial, uh, but sometimes it's expected. And that, that feels like a, a terrible position to put someone in simply because of who they married. Well, indeed. But nevertheless, uh, Terry, is it inevitable that the partner of a national leader is going to end up with some sort of public role, whether they like it or want it or not? And that being the case, should there be some sort of way they can try to do some good with it? 
I, th I think, yeah, there's a sort of contradiction here because we kind of, we want our politicians to seem sort of normal and to seem like they might be nice people. We want them to have nice sort of partners and families. And, you know, I remember, you know, with sort of when Gordon Brown was tr going to be the leader and at that point, you know, hadn't had children and people were sort of, you know, you know he's, he's got to, he ought to be married in order for him to be <laughs> a proper prime minister. And there was this kind of, you know, this expectation that there's some kind of a, a weird sort of family role model. And I think we're kind of going back from that we've seen a lot less you know recently certainly of like prime minister prime minister's children in the last few years i mean obviously you know boris johnson sort of having sort of gradually <laughs> more and more of them who were little blonde haired children who would turn up um but i think yeah there's this slight contradiction on the one hand we want them to seem normal and therefore we want to know about their personal lives and their family lives and on the other hand we're kind of saying well their spouse shouldn't have a, a political role and and to be fair the people who've been sort of best at that role would probably have been just as good at standing for election themselves and actually uh, you know doing these things on their own merits uh, I, I do try uh, or at least I do enjoy personalizing questions such <laughs> as these somewhat so I, I do want to finally ask you each in turn and I will start with you John I don't know how much thought you've ever given this prospect but should fate thrust you into such a role as the partner of somebody elected prime minister for example of the United Kingdom what, what would you do with that position um, well, I, th I think my, 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 my partner would be a wonderful Prime Minister, but I think she's far <laughs> too sensible to go anywhere near it. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 it would be a difficult thing to do because I would, you would be very aware of the lack of legitimacy. And, you know, I have strong, I have strong views about certain things, about how we should manage uh, politics in this country. I think we should be spending more on infrastructure. I think we should be building a lot more housing. And you'd if, have to if, keep very quiet about all of them. I would, and that would be immensely frustrating, not least because that's the main source of my income. Um, so that would be um, that would be that. Would, but 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 it, but if 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 my partner is listening, I promise I'm not trying to limit your political ambitions, and you do whatever you want, my love. Uh, and, and Terry, the, the same question to you: How would you handle being the? It's not an official role in the United Kingdom, no. but but you know what Prob I'm saying. Probably quite bad at standing nicely, <laughs> politely in the street and down the street, looking supportive. Um, I would be. Kind of going, I quite like a nice. Can I come to Bali? Bali's Bali's nice at this time of year, you know. And then being told, going, I have no suitable clothes. People would be looking at me and, and looking at what I was wearing and, and asking, you know, and going through books I'd written. I might, I might sell some more books. That would be. You good. would almost <laughs> certainly. But then they'd be sort of can I change you, my answer? Have you, have you read that reference on page ninety six? Oh my goodness, did you see what she said? You know, so there would be a downside to it, and I mostly would be wanting to tell people to go away and leave me alone. But you would be broadly quite keen on attending conferences in tropical no, locales meet, during the, the winter king, months. You know, banquet occasionally, maybe. That would be, yeah, all right, you know. Well, with, 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 those, with those powerful encomiums <laughs> to public service, uh, Terry Stiasny <laughs> and John Elledge, uh, thank you both very much for joining us. We will have more on today's Daily shortly. Join Marco Sippi for the menu, bringing you Monocle24's recipe for the best in drinking and dining. We make entertaining a doddle. It's incredibly easy to make. With expert opinions. You can use fish fillets, which you grill in the oven or pan fry. A bit of seasoning. Lots of lime, a lot of cracked pepper, and a bit of good olive oil. And plenty of spice. And then you cook it in caraway and seven spice, as well as something sweet. Then you take a big pot of mascarpone and spoon it into your egg yolk. And maybe even a little bit nuts. You take it out, you top it with some pine nuts, and you're good to go. It's a recipe that's guaranteed to impress. It's slightly controversial, but it's the one thing that has surprised the most people when they eat it. 
Premiering live on Monocle 24 every Friday at 2000 London time, midday in Los Angeles, or downloadable wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller, and the nominations for the 2023, 2020, 2023 Grammy Awards, I'm being informed, have, as we are now apparently obliged to say, dropped by way of establishing a benchmark for their credibility as arbiters of quality in the field of modern popular song. Let us remind ourselves that Coldplay and Ed Sheeran, both duller than six courses of lettuce, have won 11 of the things between them. Nevertheless, the discourse will not conduct itself, and I am therefore joined by Monocle's senior correspondent and dubious baubles desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Um, Fernando, as alert listeners may have gleaned there, I, I am something of a Grammys sceptic, but you're quite excited about this. I am excited, and by the way, you mentioned Coldplay. Yes. They are also nominated for Album of the Year. Hooray! <laughs> well, but let's not talk about them, because they are not actually the favourites. And they're also uh, extremely boring. Maybe I agree with you on that one, Andrew. But the Grammys, I I do understand your grudges with the Grammys because, you know, there's so many categories. It's so hard to quantify uh, music quality, in my opinion. I mean, Mm. I was, I was, uh, I was uh, listening the the full hour for the nominations awards. There, there are about a hundred categories or so. The best spoken poetry album, the best uh, reggae album. There's so many of them. Is is there one for best current affairs podcast, in which case I might start getting in Interested. No, but there's one. There's a new award this year for best soundtrack for a video game. Uh, so not quite. I've, uh, I, I've got. I've got nothing. But you know, I think we need some excitement here. It's been a very big year for Beyonce. Mm-hmm. She basically become with her husband. Look, look at the coincidence. The most nominated artist ever at the Grammys. They both have 88 nominations each. Jay Z, I'm talking about. What a coincidence, right? Uh, and that, she, that sounds like a sequel. To to Jay-Z's best-known song. I think so as well. And we even have a little clip of her song Break My Soul, which was nominated for Best Song of the Year, Rack of the, of the Year, and it's in the one of the potential albums of the year. Let's have a listen, Beyoncé, Break My Soul. I'm building my own foundation, yeah. Hold up, oh baby, baby, you won't break my soul. Fernando, it may surprise you that I have literally nothing against Beyonce. I would consider myself a big fan of some of her records, but that sounds like Wigfield. She kind of rediscovered, well, she she didn't discover House, but her latest album, Renaissance, there's a lot of dance and electronica. She even got a nomination in the electronica feud. She's usually more nominated at the R&B categories or so. Uh, But she will have tough competition, Andrew, the album of the year. Uh, And I'm happy to say that the Grammys, they are known for being a little bit conservative of their choices. You don't say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but for example, you have someone like Bad Bunny, Un Verano Sin Ti, which I believe is the first Spanish language album to receive a nomination. You had artists, mm-hmm. you know, from Latin America there before, but with songs mainly in English. So that's been a huge change. And ABBA is in there. That's a surprise. Well, with... it is a surprise. I understood <laughs> that they were no longer still going. Well, the, the Grammys loved their latest album, Voyage, which I, I know it's been a while 
while. But you know, the Grammys they have this kind of funny mm-hmm. uh, date thing. Harry Styles as well, a huge year for for him. It, it's going to be really tough looking here at the nominations. If, if you were asked for your vote on best album, to whom would you be distributing it? Oh God, of course my heart would say ABBA, but you know what? I kind of feel sorry for Beyonce, even though she's the you most... feel sorry you know, for Beyonce? I'm so sorry. Okay. Even though she is the most nominated artist ever, she never won Album of the Year. And that's the prize that everybody wants. Uh, so I think it, she... It, it, it would put you up there with Millie Vanilli. Exactly. Mm, <laughs> exactly. Mm. And and I have to say, Andrew, it's been a bad year for country music. I'm really sorry. Uh, they, they usually do well. They usually go for Album of the Year or even Record of the Year. But this year has been quite uh, poorly. Do you like Brandy Carlyle, though? No, nothing at all against Brandy Carlyle. Has made some fine records. Is, is she at the races in Best Album? She is at the races, not for Best Album, but she, well, uh, she is actually. Oh, there you go. In this silent day, so perhaps that could be your vote. Uh, it could be, if anybody asked, which, let's face it, they won't. I understand, however, that you are especially excited about a nomination for Best New Artist. Yes, I am indeed. And, and by the way, I'm really happy for Best New Artist this year because they generally chose kind of new artists indeed because sometimes they nominate people in this category who has been working the music industry for years or decades <laughs> so it doesn't really make sense uh, but we have a Brazilian singer there Anita uh, which I'm this, sh- is, this is arrant home field umpiring on your part isn't it exactly so my vote would be for her but it's quite international ca- the category as well Maneskin the Eurovision winners for Italy uh, um, they, they, they were bad they were bad, but the Americans are loving that. I mean, it's very hard for an Eurovision track to, to, to be on the charts, but they did manage that. Uh, Wet Lag from Britain, uh, Domi from France. So I, I like that the Grammys are becoming a little bit more international. And I say a little bit. <laughs> Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for joining us. Finally on today's show, carnival celebrations bring to mind noisy and colourful open-air processions of music and dance. But carnival's history contains more complicated and sometimes even sinister aspects. A new exhibition in Cambridge explores all of this through the work and curation of three first-generation diaspora Caribbean painters. Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs went along to find out more. Well, in the first place, um, I have to say my first impression of Carnival, and that goes back to, you know, when something impressed you so much that you're your psyche is cored with it. It's like in etched into it. And that is the first impression I have of Carnival. As a toddler, born in Trinidad, Port of Spain, where it scared me um, and excited me at the same time as a sort of mixed emotions. And that, of course, later on, I began to understand really what, what was happening. Um, there's a great deal of depth, almost something very primal about Carnival. And that led me to look, looking further into it and found out, of course, it has a very strong religious basis and a strong spiritual basis as well. Because, could you imagine, um, the vicissitudes of life that people suffer, you know, the changes in their lives, yeah, and all the things that's happened, you know, especially under the system at the time of the colonialism and all the rest of it. It wasn't easy, it was hard. And then, of course, carnival. This explosion, you know, people just let go, you know, it was like a, a remedy, you know, to get your balance again in life and for them to be, to realise who they are as humans. John Lyons is a poet and painter. 
He's one of three artists behind the curation of a new exhibition at Kettle's Yard in Cambridge. Paint Like the Swallow Sings Calypso, Impressions of Carnival, brings together works of John Lyons, Errol Lloyd and Paul Dash, alongside pieces chosen from the Fitzwilliam Museum and Kettle's Yard Archive. All of the works reflect the history and themes of Carnival, from the pagan rituals of ancient Egypt through European traditions of Bacchanalia to London's Notting Hill. For John, Carnival at its heart serves as a great equaliser. And what we know now, you can see... There's an intermixing of cultures and also people, because there are a lot of mi- mixed races in people in Trinidad. And there's a great level on Carnival Day, right? Is when you see the beauty of this. You know, on Carnival, everybody is on the street having a great time. And um, that's how I remember Carnival, so I think. For another of the artists involved in this exhibition, Paul Dash, choosing pieces to hang alongside their own works proved complicated. The process of selecting the work that we wanted to see alongside our pieces was laborious. And I have to say that a lot of the slides that we saw, a lot of the images we saw, I mean, there are hundreds. Uh, we didn't go through all of them, we just had the time. But, you know, those that we did see were largely um, very European or based on European traditions, very Eurocentric. Um, there are very few pieces from by artists from other cultures. So it was frustrating initially. And in fact, after the first two visits to the collection of images, I almost felt panic-stricken. I thought, are we going to get images from this, from these two uh, uh, collections that would be appropriate? Because, you know, I suppose you came to it with a particular mindset, expecting to see particular kind of imagery, and they weren't there. But then over time you began to, I think I can't remember, someone brought in an image, they might have been Habdo or Akai, or they sent it out to us on the internet. And, and, and you thought, yeah, that's a possibility. And then gradually you began to see things differently. You know, and this business of expecting images, pieces of words of art from within the two collections to conform to what we, or to our expectations, that was set to one side. I mean, looked at the work for what it was. The final effect is the juxtaposition of works from across the ages that sing together as they tell the story of Carnival in this unique way. John creates vast depth in his work with striking use of colour. He says that while other painters might use an artist's palette, he prefers a whole trolley of colour choices. What happens with me when I paint is quite interesting. I mean, I actually, um, I never really, I know, I know the theme, I know what I want to to express, but I'm not sure how exactly. But because I have the experience, I love line, shape, color. I think of it as a language, you know? It liberated me from, it opened my mind up because just as I, because I'm a writer as well, I think of, um, it's a language, a visual language. It's based on line, shape, color, texture on a flat surface, right? And absolutely every, piece of work, every artwork, in terms of painting or drawing, is you have to use those elements. So it's a language. So that immediately liberates me, you know, in terms of using, and because I write as well, I think it liberates me to use paint as a language. 
On the walls of this gallery, three artists have used their own language and the result is they have found a way to paint like the swallow sings Calypso. John Lyons finishing that report by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. The exhibition at Kettle's Yard is now open until February 19th, 2023. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Terry Stiasny, John Ellidge and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.